The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the gram, stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Now, on today's episode, we have got on a fantastic guest, of course. This is Dr. Carl Truman. He is a professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College, and he is also the author of several books, including The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. So welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Zuby. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure. I've been reading through that book that I just mentioned, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. More accurately, I've been listening to the audiobook. <laughs> I'm a couple chapters in. I was hoping I'd be able to finish it before this podcast, but it's a really captivating book, and um, I'm really looking forward to getting through more of it. So before we get into some of the ideas of the book, please tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do for those who aren't familiar. Sure. Well, uh, you can tell from my accent that I'm not from stateside, though I now teach at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. I grew up in England, uh, went to college at uh, the University of Cambridge. I know you're an Oxford man. I was at, <laughs> I was at the other place. I did my MA in Cambridge, my PhD at the University of Aberdeen, where I met my, my lovely wife of 32 years, Katrina. Uh, we both uh, came to the States in 2001. And I taught at a seminary just outside Philadelphia for 16 years before spending a year at Princeton University on uh, the James Madison program. And after my time at uh, Princeton, I took the job at Grove City College, where I'm notionally in the Biblical and Religious Studies Department, but I mainly teach on the humanities core. And I'm also a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., Awesome. Tell me a little bit more about your your childhood and growing up in England. Yeah, well, I had a I from the age of about seven. My parents moved from Birmingham, where I was born. Birmingham is like the Detroit of uh, of England. It was where the <laughs> car industry was based. But they moved to Gloucestershire, which is a very rural part of the country. So I grew up in the west of England. Uh, I. I I know everybody says, you know, I had an idyllic childhood, but I really did have a pretty idyllic childhood. Uh, very rural, beautiful countryside. Went to Marling School in Stroud, which was a very traditional boys school, even though it was state run. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a very traditional boys school. And from there, I went up to St. Catherine's College, Cambridge, where I studied uh, classics. And for much of my life, I've been a church historian, but more recently moved into the realms of, of cultural criticism. 
Awesome. And were you from a very a deeply Christian family? Oh, not at all. My parents okay. had no no interest in Christianity uh, whatsoever. I, I first heard uh, the Christian gospel when my best friend at school took me to a Billy Graham rally, would you believe, mm. at one of the local football state or soccer stadiums, you would say over here. You can say football to me. Uh, football, <laughs> of course, as an Oxford guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, I became interested in Christianity through, through hearing Billy Graham. And probably it was sometime during my first year at university, uh, reading uh, books by Dr. James Packer that convicted me of the, of the truth of the, of the Christian faith. So no, no religious background at all. I came to Christianity, not late in life, but a little mm -hmm. later in life as, a, as an undergraduate at the university. That's so interesting. And when you moved to the USA, had you spent much time in the States prior to that? Or was that, um, was it your first time going there? No, it was, it was actually my second time. My first okay. time in the States, I'd, I was a visiting fellow professor at Calvin College, now Calvin University in Grand Rapids in 1996. So my wife and I and our two boys, one of whom was only three months old at the time, uh, moved to Michigan for six months and spent a very happy six months in Michigan, uh, had a delightful time at the college. And uh, it also it, it allowed me to know what living in America was like as more than just a tourist. So mm -hmm. when the job offer came in around about 2000 uh, from the seminary in, in Philly, uh, I was able to, to think about it in a more informed fashion than I might otherwise have done. That's cool. What were some of the big, what were some of the big differences? Uh, as someone who travels a lot, I, I always like to compare and contrast different countries. And I find yeah. that the UK and US, I feel like they are more different than people appreciate. I think that because the same language is spoken, yeah. a lot of people think of the USA as sort of a, a big version of the UK or the UK as a smaller version of the, of the USA. But I think there are some real core fundamental differences that would perhaps be more obvious if there was a language barrier as if as there is with England and other European countries. Yeah, I think that's a very astute observation. I, I've often thought that, that the language tricks us into thinking that, you know, Britain is just an extension of the States or the States is just a more modern version of Britain. Mm. I mean, there are a number of things, I think, that that shape the two countries. On the, the negative front, I think, uh, race plays a, a particular mm -hmm. dark role in American politics and public life that it, it I mean, it's not that there isn't racism in Britain, there is, but it's, it's, it's articulated differently. And I think certainly the Britain I grew up in class mm -hmm. was, was perhaps the bigger dynamic in, in terms of understanding politics and society than, than race. Mm -hmm. uh, I think America has a much more individualistic, and, and in some ways, celebrity-oriented culture. Mm -hmm. It's always intrigued me that in America, in Britain, we had David Beckham. But other than that, it's sports <laughs> teams. Uh, over here, everybody knows the big names. And the teams are almost adjunct to the name. And I think that speaks of something deep in American society, that you have uh, a real confidence in the strong individual that we don't have in Britain. And that's not to say that Britain's right and America's wrong. It's, it's just to, to comment on, on a difference there. And I think that also plays out in, in terms of attitude to the government. Uh, mm -hmm. I think in America, it may be changing now, but certainly the America I came to in 2001, there was a, a deep suspicion of government uh, and much more confidence in private corporations. In Britain, I think there's always been much more confidence in governments and much mm -hmm. deeper suspicion of private corporations. So there are all kinds of, of interesting differences and, and nuances. 
Yeah, you've touched on several things that that I've thought of as well, because that celebrity culture, it even goes into the politics, right? Yeah, so yeah. the way politicians, I mean, I, I, to, to put it mm -hmm. simply, politicians in America have merchandise. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> very right? You'll never see someone in the UK wearing a, a, Bo a Boris Johnson t-shirt or flying Not a Boris Johnson flag. That would be very strange. But here it's considered totally normal to wear a uh, Make America Great Again hat or a Biden-Harris t-shirt or anything true. like that. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. My my um, son does have a pair of Boris Johnson Y fronts, but you'll never see those. <laughs> yeah, and, and the point you touched on as well, um, you know, the, the first point here is is bang on. I'd say that the USA is a more racialized society. Um, I don't necessarily say the word racist, mm. but the lens of race yeah. is used much more. Whereas in the UK, you said the sort of lens of class. And I think yeah. in the States, they're often conflated in a very strange way where people just completely overlap them. And Given the different history, I understand to some degree where that comes from, but even the way people talk to each other, right? In the UK, it would be very bizarre for someone to call me Black British or African British, right? That would sound right. like the strangest yeah. thing, You'd but be... in the States, it's totally normal to say, oh, white American, Black American, African American, Asian yeah. American. They they always put this, not always, but they use the prefix. And I think that that keeps it in people's consciousness. And I think actually it causes people to be more divided at least mentally than yeah. they really need be. I, I often tell my American friends that like, it would be great if you guys could just, just call everyone American <laughs> and drop the prefixes. Yeah, that's interesting. One of the things I've noticed in my 21 years here is that the when we first arrived, the phrase un-American was used a lot on mm. the news. And that seems to have disappeared from public discourse. And I wonder if that's because the notion of what it is to be an American is now so highly contested. Uh, you can only know what an un-American is if you first of all have an idea of what an American is. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I've also been struck at the, I, I used to joke at times, I'd be in a faculty meeting and somebody would make a joke about American sport and everybody, regardless of color, would laugh, except for me, because I'm an immigrant <laughs> and I don't get what's going on. It's just, you know, Color is one way and race is one way of looking at things, but there are other ways of dividing up the, the world that are also significant. But as you say, I think that that term racialized, that's mm. a very profound way of thinking about, about American culture. Yeah. 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 Very distinctive. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of it is a hangover from the history, I presume, because oh. I guess, you know, yeah. of course, people were, you know, artificially put in these boxes and assign these labels. Yeah. And even though, uh, you know, all, a lot, a lot of the, the, the dark and horrible stuff in that history is over and done now and has been for decades, it's still very much in the public consciousness. And I yeah. think because as well, um, you know, I love the USA, everyone knows that, but because most, the truth is most Americans never leave the country. So there it's a much more, uh, us centric very, it's a very, it's, I think on average, I think it would be fair to say Americans are on average, not as worldly as people from the UK or Europe in general, just in terms of traveling right. outside and having knowledge of what's going on. It's a, it's a huge country. It. It's a, yes. I mean, my, my country is about the size of Kansas, I guess, mm -hmm. something like that, whereas, <laughs> whereas America is vast. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's interesting, you see, again, the history, clearly Britain was deeply involved in the slave trade. Mm -hmm. It was colonial slave. 
slaves. Exactly. Uh, people of color in Britain are not the direct descendants of people who are enslaved in Britain. Mm -hmm. They come as immigrants. So British racism tends to operate more along lines of, of immigration uh, and less, I think, along lines of skin color, by and large, by yeah. and large. Absolutely. So as I said, I've been uh, I've been listening to the audiobook of The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Um, and it's such a fascinating book. Can you tell people what it is about in summary? And perhaps even more importantly, why why did you choose to write it? Well, uh, maybe I'll take the second half of that question okay. first. Uh, uh, I became fascinated with the question of, of, of why the sentence, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body had become so plausible in our culture. Uh, we all have strong opinions on whether that's a true statement or not, but I, I wanted to get at a, a slightly deeper question and say, well, why is it that it's come to grip the popular imagination? What has to have happened within our culture for that sentence to make sense to, to so many different people? So the, the project itself really started as, as an attempt to to get at that, what has gone on within society, particularly in the West, that makes that a, a plausible statement. And that led me then in, in, a, in an interesting direction because it became clear to me that one cannot say that that's become plausible simply because somebody's made an argument and society has been convinced by that argument that that sentence makes sense. Uh, Society's been convinced that sentence makes sense because a whole host of other things have taken place within our culture that have served to prepare the ground for the reception mm -hmm. of that sentence. And, and if I could simplify the argument of the book, I might say what has happened is inner feelings and inner psychology has been granted, have been granted a, an authority that has come to trump everything else. If I were to say, you know, Zuby, let's you know, 100 years ago, you go to the doctor and you say, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. Uh, the doctor, <laughs> not that you would ever say that. But, uh, the doctor well, would I say, do, you know, do, I don't know if you're aware that I am the British women's deadlift record. I saw I was very impressed, actually. That is an awesome achievement, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> but but your doctor would have said to you, you know, that's a problem, but it's a problem of your mind. We need to bring your mind into line with your body. And the doctors, they're operating in a world where the physical body still has tremendous authority mm -hmm. that will ultimately ace particular feelings that one might have about one's identity. Today, you go to the doctor, the doctor's likely to say to you, in fact, maybe legally obliged in some places to say to you, that's a problem. It's a problem of your body. We need to bring the body into a line with the mind. When you compare those two scenarios, what has gone on in the broader frame is that external realities, we might say, have come to play a less and less authoritative role in who we think we are, to the point now where inner convictions, specifically on the matter of, of gender identity, have come to ace biological realities. So the book is an attempt to trace that out. And of course, that doesn't happen overnight. Uh, the book goes back, it goes back to the, the mid-18th century. I could have gone back further, but somebody emailed me once and said, why don't you go back to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve? I said, well, because the book would be 100,000 pages long and, and <laughs> nobody would read it at that point. You have to start somewhere. But I started in the 18th century where we have this move in Western Europe to start granting much greater significance to the individual's feelings than had typically been the case prior to that. And I trace the story from there right up to, to Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner in the present. Mm -hmm. 
In the book, you talk about the age of that we're living in the age of psychological man. What does that mean? In some ways, that's a, a term to sort of capture what what I've been just been talking about. And psychological man is is the is the person who thinks that their identity is constituted by their feelings, by their inner psyche, by their inner space. But it has more. It's got implications as well. For example, psychological man will therefore have a view of happiness, where happiness is is feeling good. Mm-hmm. And therefore, good and bad, good and evil start to get transformed. And, and that which is bad is that which stops me feeling good. That helps explain, for example, why speech has become so controversial. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure when you were identified as a, as a female weightlifter, you, you had some pretty interesting responses there. You know, it was a joke, but people have saying this is hurtful. This is offensive. Uh, this well, is. Well, you, you know, what was fun about it was that it was very much a checkmate maneuver. <laughs> Because the only options were to deny that I am a woman. Yeah, which you which, must have found very oppressive. Yes, which <laughs> would be which would be transphobic by yeah. the true believer's own definition, or to accept that I am a woman and therefore I am the British women's deadlift <laughs> record holder. So it was quite fun because even the people who sort of viscerally on a surface level wanted to be annoyed by it or wanted to criticize it, they didn't really have any leg to stand on because if they say hey that's a that's a man that's not that's yeah. not really a then ooh, i mean that's what, hurtful yeah what about what about caitlin what about caitlin <laughs> yeah. jenner i mean yeah. if i if i were to say that people would label me transphobic and say that i i'm i'm being a bigot and i'm not accepting this person so they, they've kind of boxed themselves boxed themselves into yeah. this corner where you can eh, you know, and I think a mistake a lot of people who who criticize this actually is they is they try to use pure you know logic and reason, not recognizing that the people who have reached these conclusions or who support these ideas haven't come there from a point of real logic and reason. So right. all I all I did was take it and say, okay, those are the rules. Okay, cool. So let's do this thing, and then it, that, I think that's a much better way to expose it i mean for example the the issue with women with women's sports which has bizarrely been going on for i mean that was three and a half years ago where uh where i did that and it amazes me that this conversation and so-called debate is still raging on and i'm like man i think if if that's what the rules are perhaps the best way to end this is just to have a ton of male athletes in every single sport just do what i did and that'll simply put an end to it because using facts and logic and reason explaining the biological differences between male bodies and female but it doesn't land with them because they're not they're not talking about biological reality as you've alluded to yeah and i think that goes to the heart of the issue that this is intuitive mm-hmm. it's it's the way intuitions have been shaped when you start to bring logic in it's pretty easy to demonstrate that the intuitions are are bogus yes that the intuitions cannot m- explain reality as we actually experience it and it's one of the reasons why i think on the on the trans front i'm relatively optimistic that in the long run this thing will collapse under its own weight Mm -hmm. sadly i I suspect an awful lot of people are going to suffer terribly in the interim and that makes me want to bring it to an end quicker and sooner rather than later but i do think you're pointing to a fundamental incoherence that ultimately we cannot organize reality uh, along these these abstractions because it simply isn't workable no it's not and it's concerning because there aren't i mean there are so many things that are 
gray areas and things that are actually not binary. I mean, not, most most things are are not, in fact, binary. This is one of the few things we have in our society, which is as a very simply it goes beyond humanity because across the entire animal kingdom, we have male, we have female. Every single person on this earth who exists right now and who's ever existed was birthed from a woman. We we know this. Yeah. We walk around every single day and with pretty much 100% accuracy, 99.9% .9 accuracy, you can accurately tell the sex of every single person who you see. Children can do it. Babies can do it. Even dogs can recognize, <laughs> can recognize people. So it, it's it's very odd just having this thing where it seems like, you know, a 99% of people know the truth and know the reality, but there's a certain percentage who have been, you know, I think a very tiny, tiny percent who have been ideologically captured. But I think the vast majority, again, it's this tiptoeing around, it, it's this oversensitivity, hypersensitivity to people's feelings and people's truths, which is a, ter a term that's used now instead of there being the truth, it's his truth, her truth, my truth, your truth, and all that. And it's it's very strange because it's just something that's so fundamental. And I think that's why it's captured so much interest because the, the percentage of people who actually identify as, um you know, transsexual or transgender, it's a very, very tiny minority. I don't think most people probably know anyone who is actually identifies as such. Yet this conversation is go, going on for years and so many academics and people are really, really looking into it and thinking about it. And it's it's odd because on some level, it seems like one of these things that doesn't really matter, right? Sometimes some people are like, oh, you know, like, why why, why even talk about it? it? It doesn't matter. It's this very tiny percent. But I think the, the greatest concern with it, there's a lot of concerns with it, um, especially when it comes to things with children and what's actually being done. But it's this full wholesale assault on the truth. And I think that if yeah. the truth, if something that fundamental can be denied um, and rejected, or people can even be forced or bullied or pressured to reject it or act like they don't know the truth, then that doesn't bode well for the future, right? If people were out there saying that one plus one equals three, um, and they're bullying and forcing and pushing people to also believe that one plus one equals three, and they're going and they're changing school curriculums, and they're doing this and this to make it that one plus one equals three, then everyone should be concerned by that, not necessarily because they are mathematicians or because they love mathematics, but because it's a it's an assault on the truth. And if that is given up, then what else can people be made to accept? Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. And it goes to the, well, the title of, of Rod Dreher's book, Live Not By Lies. Of course, mm -hmm. he's drawing that from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I think what the, what the trans movement is trying to do is force us to live by lies. Uh, I noticed even the other day, somebody sent me a link to the Pennsylvania government website, which you know blithely asserts that gender is not binary. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking this website rests upon a whole highly contentious gender theory that is challenged at every single level by intelligent people. Mm -hmm. And yet now it's simply being asserted as, as if it was a brute fact. So I, I think what we're seeing is an attempt to, to make society conform to a lie. And that's a, a, a deep problem. And I am concerned that certainly I, I think we'll, well, it's too close to it to make, 
uh, an accurate call at the moment. But I think we're seeing a rise of this stuff among young people because we're training them to be confused. Yes. And I think on the back of COVID, where a lot of young people sat at home and did social media all day long, uh, that confusion has been uh, exacerbated. So I do think that, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's a small percentage of, I would describe as genuine sufferers from this, mm -hmm. but I think at least in the short to medium term, it could be a bigger social problem because this kind of gender confusion is becoming cool and trendy. It's being promoted as such on TikTok, etc., mm -hmm. And it has the full weight of the medical and political establishment behind it, which makes it very dangerous at this point. Yes. Yes. And it's, and it's not just ideas. I mean, you are talking about making permanent and irreversible changes to people's bodies, both adults, um, yeah. but especially concerning that this is crossing the boundary yeah. into children. Um, yeah. And I think that is the, I mean, that's a huge glaring alarm, or it certainly should be yeah. to people. I, I mean, blocking puberty for gender-confused kids, it's insane. I mean, I mean, puberty is actually the way of sorting out the confusion of 93% of kids, 90, 88 to 93% of kids who are confused about their gender identity, if they go through puberty, will have that confusion solved. That tells me, following the science, that naturally produced hormones are the way that the body solves the problem. Mm -hmm. The idea that we stop the process that solves a problem in order to allow the kid to make up their own mind, that's insane. What we're essentially doing is saying, let's, let's really make the kid confused mm -hmm. and stop and then engage, as you pointed to, some fairly horrific medical treatments that can lead to well, sterilization. sterilization. Kids will never be able to have children. No. And we're telling them they can make that decision at 12, we don't allow 12-year-old kids to decide to have tattoos. Mm -hmm. And we're saying they can make that decision age 12. Yeah. That's crazy. And, and, it's you're the and you're the bad person for saying that that is crazy when it is very yeah. clearly crazy. I'm the hate monger. What's interesting, mm -hmm. of course, is that Europe, of all places, is beginning to move away from this radicalism. Mm -hmm. uh, the just at the very moment when the United States seems to be digging itself in even deeper into this ideological framework, we see Britain, for example, closing down the Tavistock Clinic, which was yes. the flagship gender reassignment uh, treatment center uh, in England. Uh, we're beginning to see in Europe signs that, yeah, people are realizing that this, whatever, however well meant it may be, is actually having very, very evil and damaging consequences for young people. Yeah, it really is. It's, um, you know, it, it's odd. I think that, and I have so, have so many thoughts on this. Number one is with a lot of these issues, it, go, it goes outside this as well, but I often just wonder, are, are, we, all, are we just too comfortable, right? Western, developed, developed society, developed countries, things have been peaceful, relatively peaceful for several decades at this point, uh, you know, loads of men are not be millions of men are not being shipped shipped off to die in war. We're not actually dealing with true pestilence and pandemics in the way that we have in in the past. Um, you know, where things have swept through the population with a 10, 20, 30, 50 percent mm -hmm. mortality rate. I mean, you know, we don't have life is just so comfortable. And it seems interesting to me that just, just as a, a casual observer, that it seems that when human beings, both on an individual level 
and on a societal and perhaps national level, when we don't have enough real problems or hardships, we go and create them. That really seems to be what's going on, where so many of the issues now are problems of overabundance, problems of comfort. I mean, it, it's it's fascinating because in my own life, I mean, to, to be healthy now in modern society, if you live in the USA, to be healthy, you actually have to go out of your way to create hardships and burdens that you don't naturally have to deal with. Going to the gym is a, is a simple example of this, right? Yeah, Every yeah. time I go to the gym, I'm thinking <laughs> this is kind of funny because, I mean, I think if my ancestors were to watch this, they'd be really confused. Right. If, if if our ancestors were to see people, especially when people drive to the gym, yeah. <laughs> people, yeah. so wait, you get it, you get in a vehicle, you drive and then you, you get on a, on a treadmill and you start lifting weights and putting that you, and you do this for an hour or two. And then you go back and they'd be like, why don't you just go, go work on a farm, go do some manual labor, go, <laughs> go build something. And it, and it's odd because you have to go out of your way to artificially uh, sort of create this false hardship just to keep your body and to keep your mind healthy if you just kind of go with the flow and just live the I mean I, I could just sit in this room on this chair and I can make my living I can I can be fed I can order in food I can get everything I need I can buy things I, I don't even need to go out to the store I can have things delivered to me I can just sit here in this chair for the next several years and I can make my money I can eat food I can take care of my basic needs it's not good for my mental health it's not good for my <laughs> physical health it's not good yeah. for my spiritual health but but it's it's possible and it's it's only in this part of the world where that's possible. And it's only at this moment in time. And we've never been here before. Even in terms of communication, I can have conversations with people. I can connect with all these people. I don't even, I don't need to go. I don't need to go outside. Yeah, I think you're, you're correct. And you're also, I think, pointing towards another dimension of this issue, and that's technology. Mm. Uh, because what we're, what we're witnessing is also the, the creation of issues that, that depend upon technology. Again, go back to my analogy, the example of the two doctors 100 years ago and today. One of the reasons why the doctor 100 years ago would have had to have given that answer, it's a problem of the mind, not the body, is he couldn't have imagined a world where the body could be gerrymandered to make it look like that of the opposite sex. Mm -hmm. uh, and that runs very deep. My wife and I were were in uh, Carlisle, Pennsylvania recently and happened to walk through a, 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 along the street one evening. There was a pro-abortion rally going on. And one of the signs there was uh, said something like, uh, consent to sex is not consent to pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And I commented to my wife, that's, it's an interesting statement that's only possible in a highly technologized society. Because in times past, consent to sex was at least consent to the possibility of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. It's only when we have very easy access to contraception, then we've got abortion as a safety net, that we can think consent to sex is in no way consent to, to pregnancy. And what you've just described as the world in which you and I now live is, is very much a technological world, that mm. uh, uh, our possibilities are determined by the, the technology we have. Uh, and of course, uh, I, I remember seeing a, an Amish individual interviewed in a paper some years ago, uh, making sort of the exact point you were making and expressing bemusement at the fact that we create all these labor-saving devices in order to carve out time for us to get to the gym mm. and do all the things that, you know, uh, harden our bodies that would naturally have been done if we were working in the fields and scattering the seed and that sort of thing. So. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's so interesting. I mean, I guess every generation has to deal with its own 
with its own challenges. And I think for sure, technology, smartphones, social media, and, you know, as you alluded to, bigger technologies, birth, birth control pill. I mean, that's an, that's an atom bomb in terms of, uh, that's a bigger technology than the atom bomb in the way I think it's changed society and culture. And we, we have these constant ongoing battles where we're in a place where in many ways, we've just never been in this place before. We've never had a society at this level, at this stage. It's not like this around the entire world. Oftentimes people say, oh, you know, the world is going mad. The world is crazy. Yeah. And I'm like, mm, it's kind of the West, especially the Anglosphere. It's not yeah. really the entire world that's going along with all this. You can go to South America, any country in Africa, most countries in Asia, the Middle East. They're not dealing with the same thing and having these same conversations. So it's so interesting to me sort of where trying to work out where this balance is between a lot of things, the balance between conservatism and liberalism or progressivism, the balance between um, having technology, but also not losing our human, our yeah. humanity and the yeah. ability to, you know, the balance between having access to all of these things, but also being able to exhibit restraint and discipline, the balance between liberty and freedom and yeah. safety and security, all of these things. And I think that we're living in an overcorrection. I use that, I use that term yeah. a lot. I think we've, we've overcorrected on many, many issues. And I think that's what's causing a lot of the problems and a lot of division. I think people can look at the past and say, Ooh, okay. You know, we touched a little bit on, on racism in the past. I think anyone would recognize in the USA or even in the UK, like, Oh wow. That, that was real nasty, explicit, yeah you know, hardline in-law racism. That was that was a huge problem. People were horribly discriminated against. So and then I, I I often say that I think in the in the sort of late 90s to maybe late 2000s, we we sort of struck a good balance on many of these things. And now for the past 10 years, it's been overcorrecting. So now it's like, oh, okay, people are kind of going back to some of these race essentialist ideas they've just inverted it and they've put you know now white people are bad and it's okay to discriminate against you know this group of people because they have the privilege and the power and it's okay to do this and actually it's bad to be colorblind and we should yeah. be seeing each other and i'm just like wait what's going on right when it comes to the issue of of um you know sexism right it could be like okay look in the past okay that was that was a problem and that's not good and now we're in this word weird place where it's like okay now men are the oppressors and there's the, there's the patriarchy and we're, we're supposed to simultaneously believe that men and women are the same, but also very different, but also social constructs yeah. and one can be the other. And it's, it's all very deranging and confusing. Yeah. And I think uh, you, you raise the issue there of social construction. I think that's critical point in that we we're all aware that there are, you know, there is a, a significant degree of social construction. We talked earlier about the difference between Britain and America. It's not that wherever you go on the face of the globe, hey, there are human beings and they all think and act in exactly the same way because they're human. But I think in, in this overcorrection that you're talking about, we've moved to the realm where social correct construction has come to, to overwhelm everything. Mm -hmm. that our understanding of a common humanity has been dissolved by all these particularities, these socially constructed particularities, such that a white guy cannot comment 
on the experience of a black guy because we are so different. Our experience of the world is so different that there's nothing that really binds us together in order to have you know, that common ground for uh, common dialogue and common expression. Of course, it's self-evidently untrue. You and I are able to talk and understand each other. Uh, but the mind, the imagination is gripped by this vision of particularity that I think is is undermining our ability to produce a coherent notion of society at the moment. That the things, if you like, that distinguish us mm. are currently so much more potent and powerful than the things which bind us together. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's just a rehash of the problem that existed in the past, right? That was the problem. The problem in the past when it comes to the issue of race was people are being judged and treated differently and separated and segregated and looked at this way or that way yeah. based on this immutable characteristic rather than looking at people's individuality and behavior and whatever, right? There's too much focus on this. And it's strange. We, that, like I said, that balance was generally struck. And I, you know, I, I, still, I still think it generally is out there in the real world, but there's this creeping notion of, want, of in the name of so-called progress, going yeah. back to those old ideas of, no, actually, your skin color and your ancestry and these immutable characteristics are extremely important, right? When people use this term representation, right? That yeah. I can't be represented by someone who doesn't look like me, right? It's supposed to be the notion that, I don't know, um, apparently, according to people who believe this, I don't know, someone like uh, David Lammy or uh, what's that woman's name? What's, what's that woman's name uh, in the Labour Party who's a little bit, who's a little bit, Diane Abbott? Oh, Diane. Right? That, that oh, I they, Diane yes, yes, I mean, I, don't, I do not share their <laughs> politics and worldview at all, right? But apparently they represent me more yeah. than someone who might look different, but actually have a much more similar worldview. And I mean, to me, to me, that concept in itself is, I'm like, isn't that, that's kind of racist, right? <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. And, and, and this is happening on all these different things. And it's, it's very, it's very odd. And it's causing people to say and do things that are honestly gen genuinely offensive in some cases and, yeah. and they're they're trying so hard to overcorrect on what they perceive to be some type of injustice or issue that they end up they end up doing the same thing they're just kind of yeah. doing it in a different direction yeah and it comes down i think as well to the very simplistic categories that that people use yes uh, I, I mean i've i've engaged uh, a couple of times over the last year with uh, on critical race theory stuff and i've tried to make the point that hey, I'm an immigrant in the United States. Uh, does that mean that I'm not, I, I can only be represented by somebody who grew up in Gloucestershire and has had my experiences? Uh, do, does my immigrant status not count for anything? Hey, I don't even have a vote. You know, I, I'm a green card holder. Uh, I, I think what we, what we see emerging is, you know, certain categories, I hate to use the word, but certain categories just get privileged. Mm -hmm. and become dominant and grip the imagination, whereas in actual fact, maybe this is one thing that, that intersectionality could do well, but generally mm. doesn't do well. You know, intersectionality points to the fact that life is complicated. Yes. In fact, what intersectionality does is it just reduces everything to power plays, which is, I, I think, again, a simplistic move. But at least intersectionality points out the fact that 
that the categories we use need to be more complicated mm -hmm. than the ones that are, that are typically traded in. Where intersectionality fails, of course, is it doesn't understand what it means to be a human. And I think that's where the big issue is. We need to recapture a common sense of humanity. Because as soon as you do that, somebody's going to say to you, yeah, but that's just a sneaky way of making <laughs> white heterosexual maleness normative for human mm -hmm. nature. And I understand, and I don't want to say that may not be a possibility. Sorry. They've gotten so ser so silly that they would, with a serious face, say the same thing to me, right? So if I said that, they'll say, oh, well, you know, you're you're upholding right now they've even saying you know i've, I've seen articles on multi multi-ethnic or multi-racial whiteness yeah right? and they, they now have this idea where <laughs> we know whiteness is not not even connected to yeah. being white so even if you're a so-called person of color i don't like yeah. that term uh then you can still be upholding whiteness <laughs> or white supremacy by wanting to see people as individuals yeah. and the, the point on intersectionality is interesting as well because Taking to its logical conclusion, you just end up with what we'd already worked out. Everyone yeah. is an individual. Yeah. Everyone is different. There are yeah. a thousand, thousands of different factors that make each person individual and uniquely yeah. different and have a different yeah. uh, way that they experience the world and, and so on and so forth, right? For, for whatever reason, they picked, you know, race, sex, and sexuality as the big three, right? So that's why they say, you know, straight, white, male, uh, black, lesbian, woman, and so on, as if everyone, as if all straight white males, <laughs> whether, whether they're a Polish, they're a Polish immigrant, or they're yeah. from an aristocracy in France, or they're a working class guy in Glasgow, all these people who don't even speak the same language, apparently, you know, they all just have the same experience. They're all yeah. somehow oppressors of, you know, and, and I think people also forget that so-called people of color make up like, I don't know what, probably at least 80% of the world's population, right? Yeah. Like on a global level, like white people are very much a, a minority. And yeah. even this term, I mean, white, it's, it's, it's very, it's very, very strange. It's such, it's such a, what's the word I'm looking for? It's just such a low resolution view <laughs> of, <laughs> of, is, of the world that it, it amazes me that people in academia and, you know, some high, you know, some intellectual smart people get so caught up in this stuff when i'm just like man like it's really not human beings are so much more complex than that yeah and i think what 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 you're commenting on there is that there's a difference between say using race as as one lens where one could look at a broader reality and say well yeah as you've already said race plays a factor you know for me to say to you the color of your skin has no relevance to the way you've experienced the world zuby that would be self-evident nonsense mm -hmm. On the other hand, to say that it is the primary determining factor, that's a different claim. And I think what we see in, in, in the sort of the rise of things like critical race theory is not, it's not a movement that says, hey, race is a factor and we need to take this seriously. And, and as you've said earlier, you know, we can point to laws that were, you know, segregation was racist, clearly mm -hmm. racist. It's not doing that. What it's doing is it's claiming something much deeper and that is a comprehensive view of reality it's less a tool in a toolbox than it is the whole toolbox we might mm. say um, i was very grateful i trained uh, uh, when i did my undergraduate work at cambridge i was a classics major and i focused one of my major focuses was ancient history and i, I was very privileged to have a marxist supervisor 
Mm. Uh, and what, what interested me about him was uh, I, I learned things from him that I consider to be good tools in, in trying to decode the past. Yeah, money's important. If you look at which way the money's flowing, it will give you important insights as to what's going on. Where I would break with him, though, is saying that's the only thing worth looking at. No, yes. class, money, so these are important. They, they give us a facet of the truth, but we cannot reduce the truth to these things. And again, intersectionality I sort of tries to play that card, but as you pointed out, it still operates along the, what we might call the politically correct and acceptable tram lines. Only mm -hmm. certain categories are allowed to play with privilege in the, in the intersectional debate. Yeah, and they miss out some really obvious ones and some that are far more, you know, far more impactful, right? I mean, if you wanted to talk about the concept of privilege, right? I mean, people are there talking about skin color. I mean, what about, what about, I mean, basically, what about socioeconomic status? Yeah. What about having both parents? What about yeah. having parents who love you? What about IQ? What yeah. about physical attractiveness? Yeah. What about um, height? What about being born in this time rather than being born 500 years ago? What about being born in a country yeah. like the UK or USA versus being born in a, a poor part of Ethiopia or Rwanda, right? There are so many factors. And I mean, I guess I understand. I, I, I guess as human beings, we're always trying to simplify the complex world around us. And I think that some of these ideas and ideologies are very attractive to people because they take something very complex and they simplify it. So if you can just look at the world and go, okay, you know what? Rather than dealing with all this complexity, let's just assume that everything runs on a on a power dynamic, yeah. right? And everyone is playing this power game, and they can play it along the lines of, you know, money, which is where you kind of have the sort of traditional Marxism, right? So you just have the the the, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, or okay, it's race, right? You have white people, white people oppress the people of color, and every interaction, every dynamic, every law, every rule, everything is based around that. Or you can uh, have the, the gendered lens, right? You know, males, there's this you know, thing called the patriarchy, which every man in the world, even boys, little boys are somehow a part of, and everything is set up to oppress um, and deny opportunities to women. And these things are attractive because they're simple and they can explain everything. They can explain everything incorrectly, but they can also, but they can't explain, <laughs> they can explain everything. It's the problem is just that it, it's, it's incorrect. It's, it's yeah. a gross oversimplification. And also I think the biggest issue with it beyond its inaccuracy is that it's just, um, it's just a very uncharitable view yeah. of humanity, right? There yeah. are many things and aspects we can criticize in culture, society, individuals, and, you know, groups of individuals, but it's such an uncharitable view. And it also is clearly, it's, it's just clearly false. I mean, whenever you say a statement like, like when people say something like all white people are racist, I'm just like, do you, do you exist in the real world? Yeah. Right. I mean, you just from your experiences of life, you know that that is not true. Yeah. Right. You don't need a study. You don't need to go deep into act. You just know that that is not correct. And, and the same people espousing this view that it's weird. Like they know, they know it's not right. So they have to do this mental gymnastics to get around it. Right. This notion, Oh, every, every X, all cops are bad. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I think it's not, it's, it's, have you interacted with police? Like, is every, every single one of them? Yeah. I mean, come on. 
it's it's a it, you know simplistic views of the world are always very attractive views of the world that allow us to feel superior to others are very attractive that's why racism is attractive i think it's also why anti-racism uh, is attractive i also think that you, you're pointing there that th this kind of stuff also breeds a certain ingratitude i mean mm -hmm. part of his thing is i'm as, as you're speaking you know it's interesting that privilege is now a bad word now there are cases of saying yeah certain privilege can be bad but i consider it a privilege that my mum and dad stayed together that yes. i grew up in a stable home uh, it's not a zero-sum game by the way the, my mum and dad did not stay together at the expense of some other couple getting divorced mm -hmm. they actually made their marriage work through the good times and the bad times they stuck it out they made it work they loved each other and it was a privilege for me to grow up in that environment I don't feel guilty about that privilege. I feel grateful. I feel very grateful for it. It doesn't make me feel particularly righteous because, frankly, it wasn't me that achieved it. It was my parents that achieved it. Mm -hmm. But I feel grateful. And I think when we get into this, particularly as Christians, when we start to get into deeply into aspects of critical theory, we need to be very careful that there are two things, well, a number of things, but at least two things that should be the hallmark of any Christian philosophy of the world, if you, if you want, for want of a better term. One of them is forgiveness, because that lies at the heart of the Christian message. And the other one is gratitude, because mm -hmm. Christianity is a religion of grace. If you're buying into a philosophy that has no place for forgiveness and no place for gratitude, it's not a Christian philosophy. It really is as simple as that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it keeps people angry. It keeps yeah. people feeling angry, resentful. I mean, Oftentimes when I look at certain ideas and worldviews and belief systems, I mean, I, th I think an interesting actual heuristic is, are the people who believe this, espouse it, and apply it, are they happy and successful? Yeah. yeah. Right? Are, are the people who are doing and saying... And with some of these ideas, I mean, you look at it, you look at what, you know, what people call, you know, the, the woke. And I'm like, these are just angry, resentful. I mean, they're, they're not, these are not, these are not happy. These are not people who I'm like, oh, cool. I, I want that. I want that type of life. I mean, they're, they're, they're angry and they have to be angry all the time. Like that's yeah. part, that's part of it. You have to be angry. You have to have resentment for at least some people in society. Otherwise, you know, it takes the wind, it takes the wind out of the sails. And I'm just like, man, I mean, what if those people took that same energy and you applied it to yourself and improving yourself and sorting out your own family and doing positive work within your own community instead of just going out and trying to scream at everyone else and try to tear everything down and dismantle and deconstruct everything yeah. it's like hey go go work on yourself man um and yeah. and they don't want to do that and this is where I think that, you know, there's a lot talked about critical theory being cultural Marxism. And there's a certain case to be made for that. But I, also th I think that another person whose analysis of, of ethics and morality allows us to explain critical theory is Friedrich Nietzsche and his concept of ressentiment, where he sees a lot in this world as motivated by negation the desire to destroy, the desire to overcome, the desire to invert things. And it, it, you know, for him, it's not a good thing. You know, mm -hmm. Ressentiment speaks of it. It's impossible to translate it to English, but it means something like festering, boiling resentment, mm -hmm. whereby you constantly define yourself in negative terms over against that which you think is powerful and dominant. 
that's the critical theorists. I think they are, or at least the the, the critical race theorists, mm -hmm. they're angry. The critical gender theorists, they're angry and they define themselves purely in terms of negation. If you ask them what the positive vision is, they find it very hard to articulate. Mm -hmm. They have this belief that, well, if we can just tear everything down, of course, utopia will somehow emerge from the, the ruins. That's not going to happen. No, it's uh, also very arrogant. Oh, unbelievable. It's, it's, it's unbelievably arrogant to think. I mean, yeah. to me, it's like opening up, a, you know, I'm not a mechanic, right? But it's like opening up the, you know, popping, popping the, uh, you know, open, opening up an engine and just, you know, taking a hammer and tools and just sort of smashing stuff around. Or, I, you know, I'm not a surgeon, right? But I open, open up a human body and I just start moving stuff around and, yeah. you know, oh, we don't need that. Get rid of that. I don't know what that does. Let's get rid of it. Just moving stuff around and thinking that I'm somehow going to make that body or engine function better than it does. So whilst on an emotional level, I can understand sometimes why people have this reaction of, oh, you know, the whole thing, the whole system, we just need to rip it apart and so yeah. on. But there's there's this arrogance, as again, especially considering what I said before about many of these people, it's honestly, I'd say all of yeah. these people, they they do, typically don't have their own house in order. So it's like, you, no. can't, you can't sort out your own life and get your own house in order, but you have this hubris to believe that you can completely alter society and, and a whole nation and it's going to come out it's going to come out better not not worse yeah. um maybe yeah. be careful with that you can talk about smashing capitalism and capitalism may well have its problems, but you don't want to smash it until you've got something to replace it with because an awful lot of people are going to starve. If you just tear the whole system down, yeah, man, we, better, we better all be market gardeners because we're going to have to find our food somewhere. Yeah, and it's also funny because it's it's been tried before. Oh, it's, yeah. li it's been tried. But that's, that's the thing is just, okay, hundred past 100 years, we have multiple instances in different countries, different parts of the world with different cultures you know, okay, what happens if you just throw out capitalism and you institute, you know, communism at, at the state level? What happens? Oh, okay. We tried. Okay. <laughs> we tried it once. Oh, let's try it again. Okay. Yeah. Horrible yeah. results again. Let's try it again. And so I'm like, you, this is no longer experimental even. It's like, oh, look, we know where this goes. We can accept that. Yes, you know, I'm, I'm a free market capitalist, but I can understand that there can be perverse incentives with certain things when everything is driven by a profit motive and there are some checks and balances that perhaps might be might be needed to stop i don't know you, we, we probably wouldn't want apple and google and facebook and um you know amazon we probably wouldn't want those all merging into one <laughs> super super global corporate right like, like that we, we probably don't want that to happen yeah, right yeah. when you when you have capitalism on a global scale and everything gets exported everything's now being manufactured in china and whatever that can have some issues right like you you can accept and be aware of some of the potential issues and be considerate of how those should potentially be addressed without just saying okay well because that exists we need to just tear down the entire thing yeah. and it also just denies the reality of um another problem with some of these ideas is they, they just deny human nature yeah yeah they tend to be abstractions they're, mm -hmm. they're dealing with the abstract rather than actually dealing with how people really operate and live and i was i was actually writing something this morning a short article for world magazine and uh it's it's a uh, 
it's a lesser known piece of George Orwell, but was hugely influential on me as a young man. And that's the second half of his book, The Road to Wigan Pier. First half is really Orwell's travelogue of traveling through the north of England during the Great Depression and witnessing real poverty. Mm. Uh, the second half of the book, though, is, is, is this long polemical critique of middle-class Marxists in the 1930s, which I think translates easily into present day, one might say, of, of middle-class critical theorists. Mm. What all is essentially saying there is the problem with Marxism is it's too theoretical. It deals with abstractions. It doesn't deal with real people living in real circumstances. And what happens when the left gets totally wrapped up with theory is real human beings, real poor human beings are the first ones to suffer and they suffer the most. And I think that ties in nicely with what you're saying, that we have to deal with the system as it really is. We have to reform the system in a way that uh, takes account of the fact these are real human beings mm -hmm. uh, who have real ways of life and need to be respected and cared for as individuals and as real human beings, not just as statistics or categories or races or classes. We need to think in far more concrete terms. And, and I'm very sympathetic to what I would see as, as Orwell's anti-theoretical bias in his, in his politics. Absolutely. So, Dr. Truman, where do we go from here? Um, well, Rod Dre would say Hungary. You know, let's all fly to Hungary. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the, the answer, there are a couple of, a couple of things to, to bear in mind. One, each of us needs to ask, where can we make most impact? Uh, you know, we all have different callings. You're a huge public figure. You have a, you have a platform that allows you to speak. And you know, my former research assistants were amazed when they heard I was going to be on. I thought, wow. <laughs> awesome. uh, gosh, this guy must be huge. I'm, I'm of an age where I'm just disconnected from pretty much everything. <laughs> but you have a huge platform. So for a guy like you, there's tremendous opportunity to have uh, a wonderful impact upon the rising generation, getting him to think about these key issues. For many others, we don't have the same big platform, but we can make an impact in our local communities. We can make an impact in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in our synagogues. Uh, we can make an impact in our workplace. And I think uh, I would like to see people in the next decade turning away from the abstractions of social media, if you like, where people are just pixels on a screen and reconnecting with, with real communities, real human beings, making a difference where, well, I think you know, God has placed us to make a difference. So for me, the first thing we've got to do is recapture a local vision, if you like, mm -hmm. or most of us have to recapture a local vision. There are national figures, but most of us are not national figures. We might like to think we are because of our Twitter accounts, but in actual fact, we're local figures and we can make an impact in our local communities. And that's where I'd like to see. And my wife and I, we, uh, I love writing, I love traveling and speaking, but the thing I love most is being in the classroom at Grove City College and then opening my house for hospitality to students because that's where I engage with real people and that's where I can make a real impact. I love that. I think we need to use technology to enhance and deepen our yeah. human connections yeah. rather than replace them yeah. Or push us further and further away from each other. Use technology to respect the real. Yes. And enhance the real rather than to replace and supplant the real. Yeah. I love that. Uh, Carl, where can people find you online? 
Uh, I I don't I, I don't do social media and I oh, don't man. publish anything that doesn't go through an editor. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I don't trust myself essentially. So the the places to find me would be uh, firstthings.com. I write uh, every two weeks. I write a column for the First Things website. It's a a website devoted really to sort of religious conservatism, not exclusively Christian, but primarily Christian. And I also do um, an op-ed column for world opinions online every two weeks as well. So first things and world would be the places to find me. Awesome. And where can people get your book? Um, you can buy it. Uh, you, got, you can buy it from the beast. You can buy it from Amazon. You can buy it direct from Crossway. You could probably find it at eighth day books, which is the best bookstore in the United States, uh, down in, uh, in, in Kansas. Uh, so eighth day books would be a place to get it, but you'll find it in Amazon, uh, at Crossway. Awesome. Dr. Carl Truman, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's been a real, real pleasure. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and I bang, y'all gonna remember the name. Y'all gonna remember the name. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.